diversification is bad for an individual person or company to be diversified into too many different things. Think about it. Berkshire Hathaway is certainly the most diversified company in the Fortune 10, possibly the Fortune 500. Yet they only have 27, 28 people in their headquarters, and they've got experts on the ground in 107 different companies. Hey there, I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast, where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why? Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Paul Moore. Uh, Paul was actually on episode 134. I'm so happy to have you back again, Paul. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. It's an honor to be here again, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm excited to catch up. Um, why don't we just start with, you know, kind of kind of tell people that haven't heard that episode, tell them a little bit about your background. I mean, you're an author, a real estate investor. Uh, you've you've done a lot. And so maybe give us a, a little bit of a recap, and then we'll kind of talk about where we're at now in the market. All right. So I sold a staffing firm uh, 26 years ago. It's a quarter century. What's up with that? Uh, to uh, to a publicly traded firm. And then I started flipping houses, started flipping waterfront lots, started building houses. And I learned something important. Uh, I might have shared this before. It's really important that if you don't know how to tighten your own doorknob, you shouldn't build a whole house. Just <laughs> something I learned. And, um, but uh, at any rate, yeah, right. Uh, then I got into marketing, copywriting when, you know, during the 2008 to 10 slowdown, uh, but jumped back right back into real estate in uh, multifamily uh, and hotel syndications. And that went really well. Um, wrote a book on multifamily, humbly titled <clears throat> The Perfect Investment. And then within a couple of years, I was on po every podcast I could get on saying, time out. It's not the perfect <laughs> investment. It's actually not at all. If you have to overpay, if you have to over leverage, if you have to get floating rate debt, um, uh, I didn't really know the implications of how bad that could be until it was. Uh, and if you have to potentially, you know, assume that, Tucson multifamily was going to keep going up at 18% a year as far as the rents and that our, you know, your expenses would be lower somehow. And so those were all things that we thought could bite investors um, and more. And they did. Uh, obviously, the last year and a half, we've seen that. But we had spun out of, we had put the brakes on multifamily in 2017 we started investing. We we put together six different funds over these six years, and these funds invest in self storage, mobile home parks, RV parks, uh, outdoor shopping centers, light industrial, a single family home portfolio, and tax abated multifamily. So that's that's what we do now, and um, we are really enjoying that. But like everybody else having a little bit of a, you know, slower time right now with the economy and interest rates where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
you mentioned you mentioned sort of some of the reasons why multifamily is, is not the perfect there's probably no perfect investment in reality there's there's yeah. uh ones that are they're they're, they're good uh, and they are can be great at times and there's market cycles and things like that with those the seven that you listed off now what are you what do you see as kind of the strengths and and I know there's may, maybe strengths are different amongst those different groups but what do you what kind of steered you in that direction well we really felt like um operators uh we, we felt like investors i mean really wanted diversification i know that i did and we felt like investors should also you know be investing with the very best in class operators so we had a problem i mean i'm going to back up a little bit warren buffett said diversification is basically for people who don't know what they're doing which really irritated me because I'm writing a book on Buffett, you know, about his principles for real estate investors. And I was going to leave that quote out. And I thought, wait, I can't believe that. And then I, the light bulb went off. What he meant is diversification is bad for an individual person or company to be diversified into too many different things. Think about it. Berkshire Hathaway is certainly the most diversified company in the Fortune 10, possibly the Fortune yeah. 500. Yet they only have 27, 28 people in their headquarters, and they've got experts on the ground in 107 different companies doing the heavy lifting. And so we realized that's what we wanted to do as well. And we also realized there is no way we could be experts in you know what's now seven different asset classes in fact it would be impossible for us to be best in class in two uh, especially given my age and you know i'm 59 and now so for me to become great in multifamily and, and one other like self-storage would be impossible um can your can some of your listeners actually will they actually see this yeah yeah it goes on youtube as well okay so for those who can see this, I'm going to draw a quick graph and just for, I can try to describe it as I go. So this is the 80-20 sales and marketing graph from Perry Marshall, 80-20, of course, the Pareto principle. And it says here that if you're uh, like, but the X axis is operators and the Y axis could be results. I'll put a dollar sign there. Well, you know, it's not a bell curve. The 80-20 curve goes more like this. It's called a skew curve, I believe. And the skew curve says that if you're the average, if you invest with the average operator in the average deal, you'll get average results. And that's okay. But in bad times, sometimes those average deals aren't the best place to be. So Perry Marshall says, you know, get into the top 20%. If, because if the top 20%, you know, the 80-20 rule, the top 20% should get in the top 80% of results and they could get, you know, a higher margin of safety, yeah. which is what we really want. And then, of course, higher results in the end. And so on that skew curve, it's way over to the right, which is skewed up and to the right. But if you can get in the top, 20% of the top 20% and Perry Marshall proves that the 80-20 rule is fractal, your results could be even much better. Well, there's no guarantee we'll get any good results. They could all fail. 
But we think that if you can get in this very best part of the curve, the operators and the deals will turn out much better. Well, we obviously couldn't do that. There's no way we could be great at eight, seven asset classes. Even Buffett couldn't do that, I don't think. And so we decided to pull back a level and start a fund that invests in multiple different operators, different geographies, different asset classes, different strategies, and even different places in the capital stack, which we actually thought of much later. Um, and so that's what we do. And that's why we, we did a fund. Yeah. It, it's a great, uh, it's a great point about, you know, sort of being that diversification quote, I think it it is sort of misleading because, you know, it, so many people talk about diversification as a good thing. And it, what I, th I think, as you said, like what he really means is, is diversification as an operator. You can't operate seven, eight, you can't be an expert in, operating all of these different places so but you can be an expert in locating them you know you can right. you can be an expert in finding the people that are excellent operators and that's that's what as you alluded to like that's what buffett's done with Warren, uh, berkshire half the way that's what you're doing with your fund that that's kind of the idea is, is to find and connect with uh people that the people you want to connect with then are the people that have niched down and, and are experts in that specific um, asset class. So I think it makes total sense. You know, we're, we talked, it was, would have been at least a year ago um, last time. Uh, obviously things have changed <laughs> over the last year plus uh, in the economy. What do you, I guess, I think interest rates are the most obvious, at least to people, you know, sort of that listen to headlines and things like that. What do you see as the major challenges that we're, we faced and, and maybe how do you see things going here over the next six to 18 months? So, so with interest rates going up, it's created a gap between the debt and the equity. And here's what I mean. Um, you know, it used to be maybe an operator could get 75% or even higher uh, leverage and they would be able to raise the other 24, 25% in equity, common equity, and that includes GP equity they put in. But now the equity slowed down a little bit, but more importantly, the loan to cost on the debt has dropped significantly. And so a lender might come in and say, hey, I'm only going to do, you know, 55% loan to cost rather than 75%. So that's leaving a, let's call it a 20% gap in the capital stack. That can be filled. I mean, I guess there's other ways it could be filled, but the major ways it could be filled would either be with mezzanine debt or preferred equity. So we started investing in some debt and it was paying pretty well, 9, 10, 11%. But we realized, hey, we could probably get that same cash flow and actually get some upside as well by investing in preferred equity. And so what we feel like right now with these interest rates where they are, Jason, we're investing in preferred equity. Preferred equity often has a, I won't call it a guaranteed income stream. I'll call it a contractual income stream from the uh, operator. Uh, and sometimes that's nine, 10%. Uh, 
and then an upside of something like five to seven percent on top of that at the time an asset is either um, <clears throat> either refinanced or sold. And so with a potential of a 14, 15, 16, even 18 percent total coupon, but much less projected lower risk, I'm saying that for my compliance people who are listening, um, the projected lower risk and the potentially higher return uh, are a combination we really like right now. So yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a it's a a good spot to be in. It, it, as you said, you know, kind of decrease your overall risk and at least you're probably increasing you're increasing over what you're getting on a debt. You know, in the debt position or potentially increasing what you're getting on the debt position and and maybe equate equitable or maybe slightly lower than the common equity but you even still like your risk is so much further down because you're in a that preferred spot in the capital stack so it makes a lot of sense i i think um it's and, it, and it's needed right so it makes sense as the the person who is the in that position, but it also makes sense from the people purchasing assets and uh, operating them and needing to fill that gap that you just mentioned. Yeah. Do you do you feel that? So with leverage being down, you know, one of the things that people have have always talked about as a risky thing, and and why um, we've had different real estate specifically 2008 the real estate crash was everybody was over leveraged that was one of the things that was talked about a lot do you feel that the fact that now you can't get quite as high leverage on assets is actually putting everybody kind of in a safer position on assets that are bought now or how do you feel that's that's a thing i've thought about it and i'd be interested to get your your opinion i would say yes in the sense that, you know, if it's leveraged at, let's say, 50% rather than 75, the debt service coverage ratio should, there's no guarantee, of course, but you would hope would be stronger. It, now, the offsetting factor to that is interest rates are higher right now. Right. Um, but um, I think it's making people way more wary <clears throat> of getting floating rate debt. Uh, bridge debt. And um, I think the offsetting factor, I'm going to be super vulnerable and honest here, and that is preferred equity kind of puts those common equity investors back in the same place. Because if preferred equity comes in, it's ahead of the common equity investors in the capital stack. Sure. And so if it's, let's say, 50% debt, 25% preferred equity and then 25% common, the common are just in the same place because, <clears throat> excuse me, they're behind 75% of debt and preferred equity. So they're kind of back in the same place. Um, so I don't know that they're in a safer position to tell you the truth. I feel like the pref equity and the, and both, and the debt are both, you would think in hopefully safer positions than they were back in the day when people were stretching up to 80% LTCs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I totally, that totally makes sense. If, if you're in a deal that is using the preferred equity, then it, 
it's probably not that different than you know having a just a debt alone at 75 percent. Right. but yeah it it was just something I, I i've thought about it you know it's like it's you're, you're going to have lower returns generally if the leverage is lower that's typically why people get excited about higher leverage uh deals right. that, you know you can increase the returns to the investors so you, it's always a, a balance between um risk and return right it's you're not right. you're not likely to get super high returns without a little bit of extra risk and and vice versa so right. what um in so i mean nobody knows what's going to happen exactly with the interest rates and i it, it's funny to to look back to me in hindsight and listen to some of the, the the people that that people that i like not that i still respect them but people that i think really do know you know have the pulse on the economy and have ideas of how things were likely to go and the way that they thought things were going to go back in uh 2022 you know mid 2022 and then we were hit with um historically high and historically fast interest rate rises right what do you what do you think happens from here i i think that there's you know there's of course always suggestion there's always you know this is this is what people think are going to happen at the next fed meeting and all of that but it's like I, f I feel like nobody actually knows. I, so, yeah. so this is not a, uh, this is, we won't hold you to it, but I'm just interested as someone who's, you know, kind of been through it. What, what do you think is coming? Well, I mean, I, I, I spoke to, and, and I, it's not like I usually speak to someone from this company, but I spoke to someone pretty high up at Oak tree today, Howard Marks company. And he said that he thought that, um, it looks like um, it's going to be uh, inflation is going to be sticky in the three to 4% range. <clears throat> and he and I both agree that it's probably, we're probably near the end, if not at the end of um, rate increases, the economy's probably a little worse than it looks and going to get worse. But the question is, how do you get back down to 1.8 to 2.0, you know, targeted inflation? Not sure how, except for a, an economy that's much weaker than it is today. And with housing clearly being resilient, especially multifamily being as resilient as it's been, which has been amazing. And there's evidence today from the Wall Street Journal article saying that it's much much better to rent than buy right now you know it's uh it seems to me it's going to be pretty hard to knock that down other stuff's going to have to fall harder to compensate for housing being so strong and resilient so i think we're you know i mean obviously you know not going to want to try to have a crystal ball here and ne neither of us would do that but it looks to me like it's there's going to have to be a pretty significant softening in the economy um, or maybe something worse, like a war, um, hope not, to um, that will result in inflation getting back to normal <clears throat> without more interest rate hikes. If it doesn't, maybe we'll see more hikes. I do believe that uh, Jer Jerome Powell is a direct, I mean, he is a direct disciple of Paul Volcker, who you know, 43 years ago, raised interest rates as far as he needed to, to kill inflation. And that obviously was in the, into the 20% range. Yeah. 
yeah that's frightening to think about but that, but it's uh yeah it's just a um I don't know it, uh, I'm not an economist and it's 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 a fascinating thing to kind of watch and and I suppose in a lot of ways just I don't understand exactly how it ties all together but it it seems from certain perspectives these interest rates are so so damaging to the economy that it's doesn't it doesn't make sense to me like why do you keep why do you want to go into a recession so it's but again I, like that's coming from a very ignorant place of not understanding all the inner workings of um you know country economy eco economy and things like that but it, it's just it's it's hard to be logical about it or for me to think logically as to what's coming it is <clears throat> and yeah yeah right um, it's, it's really hard to tell yeah yeah so with your your fund and your you've you're investing in you know asset classes sort of outside of multifamily do you is that because you feel that those are maybe more recession resistant or um what has led you in that direction yeah so that guy who wrote that perfect investment no i'm just kidding um for some reason people just flooded I mean, lots and lots of new people, including myself at one point, flooded into multifamily first mm -hmm. before self-storage and mobile home parks and RV parks and these other asset types. <clears throat> and I don't mean that, you know, that, I mean, there's there's tons of people in these other asset types, but the, the flood of new people into multifamily is just unprecedented. And I think what caused that was partially the Jobs Act, which in 2013 to 2016 was all crystallized and caused just a whole lot of additional people to come in and want to invest in alternatives. Number two, you got social media. You got people, you know, like famous people like Grant Cardone or Michael Blanc or other people out there promoting uh, you know, hey, you can get rich in multifamily. And I'm not saying bad about those guys. Michael's a friend. He's great. But they were out there. They did, they cast a wide net with social media. They brought, you know, thousands of people to their conferences. And then mentoring grew up. So we got these mentoring programs where people train people to do these multifamily deals. And you know, I mean, specifically in places like Dallas and Houston, there are some huge mentoring clubs for, excuse me, multifamily syndication and thousands, literally thousands of smart people who have paid tens of thousands of dollars each to join these groups, these mentoring groups, and they're chasing after the same deals. And I was told by a broker in Dallas that some of these deals get bid up uh, 20, 30% above asking price by several students in the same club bidding, bidding against each other. I call it a club, but you know, I don't know what they would call it. So all this happened. And then we got an unprecedented amount of money uh, being thrown at these deals. We've got the popularity of self-directed IRAs, and this is turning into a long answer. So all this stuff converged. And as it converged, multifamily just sort of went through the roof. At the same time, self-storage started becoming more popular. Mobile home parks much more slowly became popular. RV parks, in my opinion, are, 
I, I can't say this as a fact, but I, I would say that maybe they're like where self-storage was in the 90s. Of course, I don't know that because I don't know the future, but it seems like RV parks, I mean, I don't know, I know hardly anyone who would know where to go to invest in RV parks successfully. Yet there are some operators that are doing a great job, but uh, that just hasn't really caught on yet. And so this is why we, I kind of getting back to your question, we like multifamily in certain situations like tax abated multifamily, but I really like investing in more of these alts that have a higher possibility of having a mom and pop operator. Mom and pop operators don't have the desire, the resources, or the knowledge to significantly upgrade an asset, get it running at its full potential. And so they're leaving intrinsic value, as Buffett says, intrinsic value on the table. By operate by buying one of these assets and paying a fair price, um, you can upgrade the asset. You can significantly increase financials and ultimately the net operating income and hopefully if cap rate doesn't go too crazy you can increase the value of the asset and so i mean like when one of our operators bought a self-storage facility that had homeless people living in it and a bunch of people not paying and virtually no signage and deferred maintenance that went on for 40 years, you know, since the operator, the same operator had built it 40 years ago in 1982 or three, um, you know, no website, uh, no professional management rates at 41% of market rates. I mean, there's a lot of upside there and it'd be hard to find an apartment deal like that, but it was possible to find a self-storage deal like that. And I could tell you about five more deals that are similar, but that's why we like investing in some of these quote alts. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the point there about the, the mom and pop ownership is, is pretty huge. Cause I think it's, it's true. Like right now, if you want to buy it, it, it's an, it's an interesting um, like juxtaposition because if you want to buy large multifamily, which is what is kind of touted as this is what you should buy large multifamily because of economies of scale efficiency all of that and and I agree with that but but the bottom line is like th there's probably none of that left anymore that you aren't buying from another syndicator or family you know someone who's been uh, operating that at, at at a professional level and so if you want to buy multifamily from mom and pop you you probably have to go smaller but then you're going to face some of those challenges on the, on the management side. Um, but with, with these other asset classes and, and I guess um, self-storage is probably, well, I don't know. I, again, I don't know this for sure, but self-storage to me seems like kind of the next one in line, right? Like multifamily exploded, self-storage got popular when uh, some people realized that multifamily like yourself was, was exploding. And so, Everybody's just kind of looking for that next, um, I guess, growth asset class, if you will, right. that that's they're trying to find. So um, where does, you mentioned, um, I, I want to talk about two, two of the things you mentioned. One, you said single family home portfolios. So where does that kind of fall into your strategy? Why would you include that with with, you know, these others? Yeah, two reasons. Number one, 
um, these folks are buying, um, the folks we invested with are buying very low priced uh, workforce housing. A lot of it is Section 8 in places like Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Detroit, where there's a very steady demand. Uh, they're getting the economies of scale to manage a lot of them. They're getting, you know, in where in areas like, I believe, Baltimore, from what I understand, if you trash a Section 8 house or if you end up getting kill, kicked out of the Section 8 program for non-payment or whatever, uh, it's very, very hard to get back in. And there's a waiting list, I've heard, several years long to get these houses. So um, these houses don't explode in great economies. And they don't take a huge hit in bad economies. They're just fairly steady. The second reason is we invested in PREF equity. So by investing in preferred equity, again, we're lowering the capital stack. And we're, uh, we've got that common equity cushion behind us that is in first loss position. And that is what made us more willing to, to do that, Jason. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And what about the the tax abatement multifamily? Is what's your I guess maybe it's obvious, but like what's kind of the strategy there? Why um, why that specifically? And and how maybe define that I guess for listeners. Yeah, so there are high tax states like New Jersey and Texas, for example, <clears throat> that have programs where they know that they desperately need affordable housing near cities. There's obviously a lot of people who live near, let's say, New York City or Dallas or Houston who need affordable housing, but it's very hard to get, especially Class A or B, you know, apartments now that they, these are being priced so high. And so what happens is an operator, they will go through significant hoops, Um They'll jump these significant hoops with a local municipality like Houston or Dallas or San Antonio to um, build or to more likely acquire multifamily that um, it might be class A multifamily. Uh, and they'll waive the property tax for the next 99 years on these properties if the new owner, the new operator will make these into affordable, half of the units into affordable. So by keeping half at market rates and half at an affordable level, which is, you know, based on the average median income in the area, um, it, the offsetting, the gain from wiping out property taxes is so much higher yeah. than the, <clears throat> excuse me, I should say the proposed gain or the potential gain is so much higher than the potential loss from making some of the units affordable that it's significantly increasing the debt service coverage ratio, decreasing the LTV, and increasing the appraisal on the asset. I mean, I'm talking about dramatically increasing the appraisal on the asset. And so um, the operator we invest with has done this almost 90 times. And um, we're pretty impressed with what they've been able to do. Yeah, that's a phenomenal strategy. I mean, the, the, your your taxes are very likely 
you're you're even in the non high tax states that are is very likely one of the highest expense line items so and in places like like texas is is uh tremendously high property taxes so it it's right. yeah i can imagine <laughs> you could you could very easily be able to bring you know some of that rental revenue down if you're decreasing an expense you know to such a high level so that's that's fantastic smart i like it i like i think i just i guess i'm asking you questions for my own uh <laughs> my own curiosity as to to what sort of things i should be looking at for uh investing in as well um that's that's very cool paul well, let me um let me switch gears i want to get to ask you the questions and i the same questions i asked you last time i'm sure some of these answers may be the same but um, the first question is always based on the name of the show. I, I like to ask people, what is your why? Um, I think it's oftentimes there's an evolution to the why. I'm not sure that yours has changed in a year, but, uh, you know, kind of what, what's driving you at this point after, after all this success? Yeah, I'll say the same, more or less the same thing as last time, but with more urgency. Uh, and that is if you took the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, at least through 2021, uh, and added those together and doubled that total number of those record profits, you would be about where human trafficking uh, is reporting, or well, not reporting actually, their profits per year, according to the U.S. State Department. And The Sound of Freedom blew the lid on this this summer, the, that movie that just took America by storm. It's not an easy watch. My wife hasn't seen it yet because she's experienced some violence against her and some other people she knows in this arena. So it's very upsetting to her. And it is to me, and it should be to everybody. Did you know, and you may want to edit this out seriously, uh, but Jim Caviezel, who is the star of Sound of Freedom, has done a lot of research on this. He said he I think he said he couldn't sleep for a couple years because of some of the videos he'd seen and horrors he'd uh, you know uh, read about. But he said that for seventy-seven dollars you can buy a barrel of oil right now, but a barrel of human body parts—and I'm not talking heart, liver, brain—I'm talking about just excess parts that the they sell it sells for seventy-seven thousand dollars right now. And this is the eventual end to a lot of human trafficking victims. Um, and uh, these body parts are uh, you know, used to make life-enhancing drugs for wealthy people, according to what Caviezel says. And so it's just adding to, the, my, to my intensity to try to raise money to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. The problem is, who knows what to do? Am I going to go on a commando raid with, like, the Sound of Freedom dude, you know, down in Central America? Probably not. Um, am I going to send money off to somebody I don't really know? Uh, makes me nervous. Well, our company, Wellings Capital, has vetted a few operators in the nonprofit space, and we've got one we really like. We're raising money for them again on Giving Tuesday. I can just tell you the group's called AIM, A-I-M. It's aimfree.org. And we're encouraging people to go check them out. Fantastic. Fantastic cause and, and truly unbelievable. Truly, truly unbelievable that, that that's yeah. a, 
a thing at all, let alone such a, a enormous, um, I, I don't even want to call it an industry, but um, it is. Yeah, it's tragedy. Um, gosh, well, Paul, uh, it's like a little bit hard to, <laughs> hard just to like kind of get, just move past that. That is very upsetting. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, let's, let's just say, um, when people hear this, Paul, you mentioned some of this, I will get it in the show notes, but, but where do they, where do they reach out to you? They want to, want to get in touch, whether it's about, uh, investing or, or it's about human trafficking cause. Right. Yeah. They can come to our website, wellingscapital.com. And if they want to get free special reports on several different asset classes, including RV parks, self-storage, mobile home parks, uh, you can go to wellingscapital.com slash resources. And I would love to invite people to follow me on Twitter at Paul Moore Invest. We'll put that stuff in the show notes. Um, Paul, you've been on before. I'm not going to even make you answer all the questions. I, th I think it's more important we leave people uh, really thinking about, you know, where we can, where we can make a difference. Uh, you've got a... a obviously very worthy cause. Um, and so let's just end it there. Um, make sure they check out. You want to say that website again, AIM? Yeah, it's A-I-M-F-R-E-E, aimfree.org. Okay. And we're right. actually doing a Giving Tuesday campaign in affiliation with Wellings Capital. We've been able, in, in a, affiliation with Collective Genius, to raise, uh, raise and influence about $485,000 in the last three years. So we're doing that on Giving Tuesday as well. And we invite people to be part of, you know, reach out and be part of the match or be part of the giving on Giving Tuesday. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Paul, for, for coming back and sharing everything with us that you did. Uh, I really appreciate it. I love talking to you. Um, thank you. Thank you again for taking the time out. Thanks, Jason. It was a real honor. Thank you so much. Folks listening, uh, I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Please like, rate, and review, uh, and make sure you connect with Paul um, in, in whatever form makes the most sense. Thank you all for listening. Hey there. I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast, where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why?